from Ezekiel 1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chebar Canal, canal the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each of them, each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of burl, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When these went, when those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army.
When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Ezekiel 1 is one of my favorite passages. It is uh, terrifying and somewhat confusing. Um, the reason it's somewhat confusing is because there is symbolism and imagery which is used here to describe what God is doing in the midst of his people going into exile. Remember that Ezekiel, exile, you got that two E words, they're connected. And in this passage, we see a number of, of things that are extremely um, <clears throat> uh, terrifying. I, I don't know about you, but I didn't see uh, during Halloween, I didn't see anyone dressed like a cherub or one of the living creatures. That would have been much scarier than any other thing that I have seen. Um, what Ezekiel sees in beholding God's throne room and the glory of the Lord is to communicate to us not only the ways of God, but also how God interacts with his people in the midst of exile. And this is a vital piece of information to understand as a Christian in the, the American culture today, because Christianity functionally, although this is a depressing idea, is going into exile, so to speak. Church attendance among the youth, which are the next generation, is less than 4%. If that is true, with congregations closing around the country, if that is true, we as Christians must begin to prepare to understand how God is faithful in the midst of a cultural exile. That is, how are we to live as those who would be able to hear from the Lord and to see from the Lord in the midst of extremely deep darkness? Now, of course, you know that I myself believe that God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I believe that the Lord has promised a great end, that he is going to bring redemption upon uh, a great scale over all the earth. And yet, at the same time, individual nations can turn from the Lord and incur his judgment and wrath on, on their situation. If you, if you are a student of history, of course, you know this to be true. Rome was judged. Uh, various countries in all of Christendom throughout the Middle Ages were judged over and over again. Nations that were Christian at a time but fell away from the Lord have been judged in, in a way that the Christians in those countries were either persecuted or had to begin to separate themselves from the general culture at large. Christianity over the years in different uh, countries and nations has had such continuity within itself and the larger culture that there was very little visible in the culture that wasn't Christian. 
And as a society begins to turn away from the Lord, Christians must begin to distinguish between culture and Christianity, between, between secularism and sacred living. And so I believe that the, these instructions that Ezekiel is given, this vision that Ezekiel is given, is an introductory step to living that sort of life in which one uh, that is a Christian is able to stay faithful to the Lord in the midst of exile. So we're going to look at this passage in that framework, right? Uh, the, the four things we're going to look at today are the Christian mindset. That is, what is our mindset supposed to be as Christians? We're going to look at the details of this heavenly encounter, the throne room of, of God as Ezekiel sees it. We're going to look at how that tells us uh, how who God is, how he relates to us, and how we should in turn respond to him. We're going to look at the nature of the pattern of beholding and becoming. This is a immutable spiritual principle by which we understand those things that we behold are the very things that we are becoming like. And then we're going to finally look at how we hear from the Lord. That is, if we want to follow the Lord in, in structuring our life after him, in, in truly being a disciple of Christ and following after Christ, how are we supposed to hear God's will? That's a, a very strong concern for many believers. Uh, especially young believers who they, they think to themselves, well, I just, I want to follow the Lord. I just need to know what God's will is. And I believe that this passage in, in its ending tells us how we are to hear from the Lord, how we're to be in that place where we can hear from God and hear rightly. So Paul gives us an understanding of how we are to live as Christians. The Christian mindset is one that is distinctly different from the natural mind. Over and over again, the New Testament epistles call us to be enlightened in the spirit of our mind, to have our mind renewed after the image of, of the creator, to have our mind set on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. And so the Christian life does not consider or does not consist of a coasting after the free call of the gospel. You, uh, man or woman, are not called to hear the message of the gospel, to hear that your sins are forgiven, and then from there, put it on autopilot or cruise control for the rest of your days. There are still things that you need to do. Uh, there are things that you need to consider about living your life rightly. This is not autopilot. This is not, uh, you know, Jesus take the wheel, and then you don't think about the rest of your spiritual life until you die. That is not what the Christian life is. Uh, you are not terminal after you receive the message of the gospel. There are things that you are called to do, called to be. You were created by God to have fellowship with him. So in, in understanding the redemptive plan of God, you were both created by him. Mankind was created by God with the capacity to have fellowship and communion with God. And then also you have been bought with a price. So you are doubly owned. Uh, in, in buying a house, you receive, through the process of closing on a house, you receive a title deed on, on that property. It's in your name. You have the right to that land. Uh, within reason, you can do so as you wish to that land. Uh, of course, those, those number of freedoms are increasingly small. But you have a claim on that piece of property. You can remodel your house if you'd like. You can tear down your house if you'd like. I don't think that's a good idea. But God... Likewise, has a double claim on you. He made you. 
and he bought you. In the creation you were made, you were fashioned to have communion with God, and through Jesus' work on the cross, he has purchased your soul. You have been redeemed from the curse, and you have been bought with a price. Therefore, we don't go on sinning. You were bought with a price. You're not your own. You are not just the pilot of your ship. The American dream, at the core uh, idea of the American dream, all that is attached to it, the, the nice career, the nice family, the nice house, the nice stuff, attached to that uh, system of a dream, an American way of living, is a core principle. The core tenet of the American dream is that you are the master of your own ship. You are the commander of your own destiny, so to speak. Uh, this is not the Christian life. The Christian life is you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You do not get to decide everything that goes on in your life. It is not just you and Jesus. Uh, unfortunately, um, many Christians believe that, you know, we, we, we believe that all we need is God. And that is true in a sense. But you need more than just your interpretation of who God is and what he's saying. You need to obtain wisdom from the scriptures, obtain wisdom from brothers and sisters who are wiser, older than you, and, and can speak into your life. It is not just you, and at, like a lone ranger, out in the wild, wild west with hearing from the Holy Spirit on your own. You require input. And, and so this input is not just natural. It's not just, uh, it's not just practical. It contains spiritual elements. This input that you need comes from the Lord ultimately. So the gospel rightly understood is the free call of forgiveness of sins, but also the call to communion with God. You do not just hear the, the message of the gospel, accept Christ, and then that's it. You have to grow. You have to, to progress. And to this end, to submit to the lordship of Christ, Paul's command to Christians is to look to heaven to find the pattern for the way that their life should be structured and what they should be doing on the earth. Colossians 3, 1 through 2, if then he's just gone through two chapters describing how he was made an apostle to the city of Colossae, how the Lord has worked through Jesus Christ in redeeming the world to himself, and also having washed all these believers who are receiving this letter, he's saying that they've been brought into this kingdom of light, out of the kingdom of darkness, and he has a summary statement at the opening of Colossians 3. He says, if then. So considering all that he's just explained in the first two chapters of this epistle, if all those things are true, it has a consequence or a logical end. If then you have been raised with Christ, that is, we've been through our baptism, we've been raised with Christ into the heavenly places, if that's happened, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul, in another letter in, in the book of Ephesians, says that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. This is where the, the spiritual mind must begin to be renewed by God himself. It is impossible for you as a natural person to believe that you're both here in Dayton, Ohio right now, and, according to Paul, seated with Christ in heavenly places. That is, a, that is a spiritual mystery which you cannot understand by your natural mind alone. And in fact, Paul says that the mind set on the flesh, it is hostile to God and it's hostile to his will. You require God to teach you how to interpret uh, those spiritual realities which don't make sense to your natural mind.
So he says, if you've been raised with Christ and you're really with him in a spiritual sense, if that's true, then your mind, he says in verse two, he says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. You are not to be concerned alone with your bank account, your 401k, the state of your property, your academic career, degree, job, vocation, children, family, husband, or wife. That is not your primary concern. Hear me, hear me clearly. I'm not saying you do not uh, pay any attention to those things, but they are not your primary focus. There is a primary focus which gives order and ability and grace to attend to all those dimensions of life, but there is a primary focus which has to be on the Lord. If your primary focus is, on, is not on the Lord, all of those areas of your life, your responsibility, the, the things that should rightly give you concern, those things will fall apart. They'll fracture like a, a floor not set up properly with a foundation. It will fall apart, even though it may look proper today. But rightly considered, the Christian life is to be focused on following the Lordship of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, and from there, ordering everything in your life in, unto that end, to glorify God. My question is, have we become so blind to the spiritual inheritance, which is ours in Christ, that we have begun to live in such a way that is dictated to us by the culture, by consumerism, by commercialism, in, in the sense that we have never given serious thought to what God's throne is like, what his order is like, how is he translating that order to the earth? Are we in this place where our spiritual life is deadened and this is a question, of course, I don't want you to necessarily answer out loud. You have to ask it of yourself. And I don't think it can be answered in any one single moment. Are you so concerned with the things of this life that you have absolutely no care for the heavenly things? I believe that the scriptures teach that God, through, encountering God through prayer, through through spiritual experiences of, of meditation on his beauty, on his glory, and also reading of the word is the primary means by which you set your mind on the things of heaven. Of course, Paul is not saying in this verse, go out into some mystical experience and find, get in touch with you know, God in some ethereal manner. Paul has a way by which he says to set your things on, uh, set your mind on the things that are above. He is intending you to focus on the excellency of Jesus Christ and those those things which attend to his throne are seen in a number of places in scripture, Ezekiel 1 being a chief place. So I believe that by examining this, we can, we can come to an understanding of what God would have us to see in these sorts of passages. But I want you to ask yourself these questions. Is your prayer life dead? Now, truthfully, ask yourself this over the last week. Did you pray? And not, I'm not asking, did you pray before meals? Although I do believe you should thank God in everything. But have you prayed in a way by which you were in touch with God? Prayer, we, we are not believers of a God of the dead. We are believers of a God of the living. We serve a living God who speaks to us, who has direct desire for communion with us through his scriptures, by his spirit, through his people. Have you encountered God in the place of prayer or reading? Is your life marked with holiness, or do you go from sin to sin, 
kind of, you know, walking through the mud, as it were, in life, just barely being able to muster up a little bit of repentance to, to have your spirit calmed, or is your life marked with holiness? Do you find your heart yearning and groaning that God would break in and deliver you from your habitual sins, your, the sins that easily entangle us? Is your life marked with that? Of course, you can only answer that to yourself. And if you're honest with yourself, I think we would all say, maybe yes, maybe no. But if, if yes, certainly not to the degree that we want. The, the life and the call to holiness is a call to a, a lifestyle of a continual dissatisfaction, not in grumbling, but a dissatisfaction, a holy hunger with the place of God, uh, uh, the place that God has in your life. That is, you are never complacent. You never, you never begin to rest on your laurels, as it, as it were. You don't kind of, after achieving a, a season or a small number of days in fellowship with the Lord, that you kind of say, okay, now I've really arrived. You keep warring against sin, and you are earnestly desiring that Jesus would have lordship over your heart. That's what it means to believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ really is Lord, that he really is at the right hand of God, and he determines, he is in charge of what takes place in your heart. Those hidden affections that you have, are you, are you mourning that you are still drawn and enticed to the temptations that you face, or are you merely putting up with the enemy's attacks? Are you merely going through the, the life of a believer who is, is near death? Uh, is, it, is it the case that you're living in this manner, or are you eagerly desiring that God would drive out every remaining stain in your heart? That's what I believe the call to holiness is. Now, hear me clearly. This is not something that you can manufacture in your heart. This is a grace of God alone, but God uses specific means in, dis in dispensing his grace. The scriptures over and over again say that the Lord rewards those who seek him. If anyone would come to God, he must believe that first that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You have to seek him. And, and your desire to seek him is first a desire given to you by the Holy Spirit. So this is not something that you should despair over. I'm not telling you to go home and, you know, uh, throw out everything in your house except your Bible. I'm not telling you to uh, retreat from the world. You have responsibilities. But in the midst of your life, are you eagerly desiring that Jesus Christ would have the reward of his sufferings in you? Because we, we long to see the world transformed, but if we take a, a mediocre Christianity to try to transform the world, A, I don't think it's appealing, and B, I don't think it would be that healthy of a change. You must be uh, in a place of living where the Lord, by his grace, is calling you higher and you respond to that call. And I believe that the Lord is calling us as a church and individually to this season of holiness that he wants us to come up here, as he says to John in Revelation 1. So I want to look at really quickly some of these things, that it, what these terrifying things that Ezekiel sees, what they might say about God. First of all, Ezekiel's vision, it, he describes God's throne room as a terrifying and holy place. Have you ever experienced the, the terror that, that comes from being in God's presence? 
I, I submit to you there's a reason why men of God, holier than me, holier than you, fall on their face before God's presence in the scriptures. It is it is a it, it is a true reality. And after this vision that Ezekiel has, in chapter three, he says he he goes and sits with the exiles who are at the side of this canal, and he says that he was stunned for seven days in a row. Now, I don't know about you, I've seen some cool movies that afterwards I thought, man, that was really sweet. Or I've been in the presence of God a few times and thought, man, that was awesome. But that lasts a few minutes, maybe 15 at the most. Um, or you know, But he, in this place, it says, he says that he was stunned for seven whole days. This is, I believe, a telling sign of the nature of the revelation that Ezekiel saw of God's holiness, and this is something that we should desire. In Ezekiel 1.4, he says, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness all around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. We know from the Exodus, we've been in the book of Exodus for the last, I, I think, six weeks. We know that in the Exodus, God comes and brings a whirlwind. And so Ezekiel sees this whirlwind, and this whirlwind is on fire. Think about the new movie, Sharknado. Well, this is a fire-nado. This isn't full of sharks, which I haven't seen the movie. It's probably ridiculous. But this is a tornado full of fire that is coming from the north. And, and as this, this whirlwind from God comes down, there's fire and there's lightning coming out of it. This is an intense uh, uh, reality that Ezekiel is seeing concerning the holiness of God. This is speaking, of course, of God's power and might. And we know in the Exodus that when God sends his whirlwind spirit, when God sends this cloud of, of, of smoke and fire, uh, smoke by day and fire by night, that this cloud is God's delivering uh, active Holy Spirit in executing the deliverance of his people. Remember in the Exodus when, when God's cloud is moving through the desert and it's, it's separating them from the evil armies and it's, it's moving forth to the desert and they follow it? This is God delivering his people. But in this scenario, in Ezekiel 1, this is at the beginning of the exile that Israel faces. And so what is God doing in delivering his people here? He's not delivering his people as a whole yet. He's delivering first a prophet who he would work through. He is first sanctifying Israel before he saves all of Israel. Uh, Sorry, sanctifying Ezekiel. So God brings Ezekiel into this encounter of the pre-incarnate Christ. There is no way to understand this passage in any other way because God, as he is understood rightly, no one has ever seen God. The scripture cannot be broken. Therefore, if Ezekiel is seeing a human figure, we know that it must be a Holy Spirit-enabled vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. God has no form, and yet he sees a form. He says in Ezekiel 1, 26 through 27, And above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a human appearance. Of course, no one has ever seen God, so this must be Jesus Christ. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, I don't know if you've ever seen casting, uh, the casting process, um, but when you are involved in welding, casting, any sort of metal forging that, in, that requires the metal to become liquid, you have to wear glasses to not uh, lose your retinas to even the infrared, let alone the number of photons that are hitting you. 
you you wear these special glasses made out of either cobalt or some other sort of panes of glass infused with some sort of gas to prevent all of this light from hitting you. This is what Ezekiel is by the Spirit encountering. He's encountering this mighty, fiery image of gleaming metal. And this is describing the holiness and purity and worth of Jesus Christ as he is seen in his glory. It says, And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him. Ezekiel sees this throne room of God, and on the throne is a man. It has to be Jesus Christ. So in seeing this vision, he begins to behold uh, Jesus Christ in his glory, that is, God incarnate. And in this place, Ezekiel then also sees things that are around his throne. And I believe the things that are around his throne give us an understanding of who he is. There's absolutely no impurity in him. This is, this is the process of removing impurities from metals. You, you fire them up a few times and you sc- scrape away the, the slag or the dross, and, and then you fire it again, and then you do the process over and over again, increasing the purity. And Jesus Christ here is seen as a man who is on fire. The excellence and worth of this man on the throne is so awesome, and if he were not gracious, it would be a terrifying thing to come before his presence. Notice Ezekiel is not consumed in this encounter. He sees these things, and and he is terrified, and he's stunned for seven days, but he is not consumed. God, in the midst of his holiness, is merciful. What Ezekiel sees concerning the worth and holiness of Christ is inestimably valuable. But what he notes about what what surrounds God's throne illumines us to understand what we might take away from this passage. He sees these living creatures, the court of the Lord, the the attendants that are around God. And in this passage, they talk about the fact that there are wheels on the earth, and the living creatures also likewise have wheels within wheels. Uh, You know, figure out how that works uh, with your natural mind. Ezekiel sees this court, and these, these living creatures who have a station on the earth and also a station in heaven form the pillars of God's heavenly tabernacle. And it says that wherever the Spirit of God moves, likewise the living creatures move. So we understand that these living creatures are forming the, they form the corners of God's movable throne room. What's happening in the redemptive history at this point? Israel is leaving uh, the, the land of Canaan. They're leaving the promised land. They're being driven over into Babylon. And so in this place, God, because of his great covenant mercy and faithfulness, is going with them. He can no longer come to the temple in Jerusalem. He has to attend to his people by this movable spiritual temple. And so these living creatures are like Yahweh's chariots. They go before him. He goes up with them. And so it says that wherever the spirit goes, they went. Now, these things tell us about God's faithfulness, but look at the way that they themselves are described. Verse 13, Ezekiel uh, chapter 1, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. They're described exactly like the whirlwind of God, full of fire, that moves around, and out of the fire comes lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. The living creatures are fiery hot like the coals that are on fire. And it's my opinion, although the text does not 
explicitly state this, I think it's adequately and rightly inferred that the living creatures do not have fire in and of themselves. They have fire in, that is on them. They are burning because they are near the throne of God. They're becoming like what they worship. We know that nothing that God has created has innate rightness and goodness and excellence in and of itself, only what he's invested with. So rightly, we understand that the living creatures are burning because they're near someone who's burning. They're being like metal, they're conducting. And so they're on fire, they're, they're, there's a whirlwind, they move to and fro with the energy of God, they follow, according to verse 20, the Spirit's leading And so these living creatures show us what it's like to be in God's presence. Verse 20, wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. And so what he's saying is that wherever, wherever God's spirit is directing these, they're moving, they're following, they're going after his lead. I believe that we can understand from this passage that worship and therefore all of life is not neutral, that you are always in the process of becoming like what you worship. And in that understanding, we see the psalmist giving, lending his voice to this idea. Psalm 135, 15 through 18, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so all who do trust in them. The idols of the nations that these men are fashioning out of silver and gold, they have no ability to speak, hear, or see, and there is no breath in them. And the psalmist says that those who make them become like them. How do they become like them? They become like them in that making them, they've become unable to speak any truth, unable to hear God's word, and eventually they lose the breath of life within them. They die. Idol makers, those who fashion idols, become like the thing that they worship. It is the pattern of the way that God has made us. We imitate uh, what we worship. We become like what we worship. And so I think also the psalmist would have in view here in this passage, also those who form idols of the heart, not just bowing down before a physical idol. I think that that in view here is this idea that you become like what you worship, no matter if it's a physical thing or a spiritual idea or you're full of fret, worry, anxiety, you become like that. You're full of lust, full of greed, full of envy. You become like that. Those things which you worship, the idols that you fashion, you become like. And so if we are, if this is true, if we wish to be followers of Jesus Christ, if we wish to be remade after the image of our Redeemer, it must be the case that we, like the living creatures, attend to the throne of God. Certainly, we know this from our own experience. Um, I was with a friend yesterday, and I this friend was burning stuff. And I don't know about you, but whenever I'm around a bonfire, it sure is nice. But what happens after you leave a bonfire? You smell like a bonfire. You smell, and if you have a beard, you smell like a bonfire for a week <laughs> because it gets in there. It really does. Uh, you smell like a bonfire. The question that I would ask you to ask of yourself is, does your life smell like the throne room of God? 
Do you, do you know that you have been near the Lord? Does your life have a fragrant fragrance of holiness to those are, who are around you? This is certainly in our experience. We become like what we are near and behold. So hearing from the Lord is our goal. I hope that, like, like myself, you desire to really follow the Lord's will for your life. You want to hear what God's will is. And this is a, something that plagues many young believers, even, even seasoned believers. We, we want to hear from God's word. We want to hear what his specific will is for our life. Not that he'll reveal everything, but he does have a general will, and he has specific desires for you. And I believe that what happens to Ezekiel at the end of this chapter tells us how to hear from the Lord. God's covenant faithfulness is shown in this passage because he not only is going with Israel as she's leaving the promised land, he he demonstrates that his tabernacle, his temple in heaven is able to move with the people, and he goes and he attends to them in their exile. And also in this passage is mentioned the rainbow of God, which he set in the heavens uh, at the flood of Noah. Verse 28, like the appearance of the bow, that is the rainbow, that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. And so this, this is giving a harmony to what we will later le- read from Isaiah 6 and Revelation 1, uh, sorry, Revelation 4 and 5, that around God's throne is the sign of the covenant, the rainbow that he put in the heavens when he made a covenant not to destroy the earth again by water. And in this place, the covenant faithfulness of God is brought to memory. It's, it's mentioned for a reason. Then after this, it says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. So this is a summary statement. He's saying that all this, all this detail that I've just told you about, this is the likeness, or rather the appearance of the glory of God. He says, and when I had saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord and it causes him to bow before the Lord. And after that, the Lord speaks. Look at the way that the Lord speaks to Daniel and John in in chapters, uh, in Daniel, uh, I think, 7 through 9, and also Revelation 1 through 3. In those places, and, and 4 and 5, and probably the rest of Revelation, John over and over again has this encounter where he hears a voice, he sees something, and then he bows, and then the Lord speaks. It's always the same pattern. Likewise, here with Ezekiel, Ezekiel is attending to the Lord. The Lord then opens his eyes to this vision, and then after the vision, Ezekiel bows, and then the Lord speaks. It's always the same. If you wish to hear from the Lord, and you are confused as to why you don't know what to do with your life, have you bowed lately? I really believe that what we do with our bodies does have a a strong determination on what we experience in our lives. I believe that it is not a symbolic thing that happens when you bow before the Lord. Uh, Cultures of old taught their children to, before they go to sleep, to actually kneel before their beds. How foreign is that to our modern minds? We're so progressive. We understand that it's just a symbol. But no, you should bow before the Lord if you wish to hear him speak. You should attend to his presence. I believe the Lord wishes to give you an understanding of his holiness, and it will not happen unless you take the time to set apart uh, moments of your life, 
moments throughout your week to meditate on the things that are above, to, with a holy imagination, give consideration to the point of life, to the God of the universe and what he wishes for his people, to righteousness and unrighteousness, to being justified by faith as God's alone, uh, God's free gift that it comes from him alone. Give attention to the Lord, and I believe that in bowing, you will begin to hear him speak. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would cause us to burn with holiness. Lord, we ask that you would give us a consideration like the psalmist who said, Lord, teach us to number our days and consider our way of walking. God, convince us of the rightness of living a life that is yielded before your throne. Help us, Lord, to dedicate times of the week, times of of the year in which we seek you in in a special way. And Lord, I ask for the great grace of experiencing these sorts of things, Lord. We know that it may never be like anything that Ezekiel or John the Revelator saw. But Lord, give us impressions. Give us understanding that would create a holy desire that you would be Lord over our hearts. Lord, we ask you to deliver us from complacency. Deliver us from being okay with sin. Deliver us from agreements with darkness that we permit in our life. Give to us a great desire for holiness. Help us to see your son in his beauty and glory, that we would meditate upon his excellency and worth, that we would see his lordship as he reigns in in glory. Lord, give to us moments in this week where we cry out to you for grace, for mercy. And Lord, we ask that you would prompt us. Lord, we, we know that this does not come from us. We require your help. We need you. Lord, without you, we cannot even breathe. We cannot even think or act. Lord, give us grace. Help us to follow after you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.